Uh, did I just wake up? No, I didn't. Uh, <laughs> I wanted a way to start off the, the podcast just right. I don't really have a way of doing that. So welcome to Wages of Cinema. I'm Jack, and with me... Corey. Yay, Wifely Duty's Corey returns. Wifely Duty Corey's is back. Yes, just the two of us this evening. Um, we can make it if we try. Just the two of us. You and I. Hugs and all. Yeah, hugs and all. All right. Um, yeah, we're going to talk about some movies that we've seen. Uh, some of them uh, just today. Um, but before we do, I wanted to talk about uh, something which is very much on my mind, uh, as I'm sure it is probably for many of you out there listening. Um, it's uh, it's something that I find kind of troubling in not just this case in and of itself, but what kind of ramifications this uh, has to do with uh, um, uh, with the movie business. I know, we're getting a little serious here. Uh, we'll bring it back around to lighter stuff later on, and uh, we'll also be w- watching some Comic-Con trailers, which we ca- which I actually, we actually did a couple years ago, but we're going to do it a little bit differently this time. Um, anyway, uh, so... You might have heard James Gunn is no longer the director of Guardians of the Galaxy 3. He got his ass booted out of Disney. Um, literally just one week before Disney decided to swallow up a Fox hole. I'm sure that has no... It's just coincidence. Um, I Now, the reason why he got booted, as some of you know, um, was because he had these tweets that he put out. Uh, which he put out a long time ago. Like, he put them out... Um, to give you an idea, it was still, like, early in the first Obama administration. Yeah, like, 2010, I think? Yeah, 2010, there. exactly. Um, and he... He not only wrote these tweets, but he also, I believe, wrote, like, a lot of dirty shit on a blog he used to write. And, oh, I didn't hear about that. Yeah, he, ha- he also wrote a blog... Um, that, here's a weird thing, so, he got fired for these tweets, well, they were resurfaced, and we'll get to that whole part of the story, because that is what makes this an especially disgusting thing that happened, uh, to, well, to James Gunn, I don't mean any tweets, um, but he, he actually apologized for saying, like, some of the ill shit he used to say back in 2012, like, when he was first being considered and hired for uh, Guardians of the Galaxy movie, which was six years ago, he apologized and said, look, this was really bad on my part. I'm trying to change and become a better person. You know, let's see what happens. You know, hopefully that happens. And it seems like over the course of these six years, he hasn't gone back to doing the kind of, you know, very... The, I, the question here, he hasn't gone back to doing this, but... I'm curious, have you read any of these tweets? I read a few of them. I read maybe, like, four or five. Okay. So a few, not a lot. I saw about a dozen of them. Like, there was that one tweet going around that had kind of, like, 12 tweets in one thing. Yeah. I would say... I mean, it. here's the thing. If you're asking me, what, well, did you find these funny? No, not really. Like, they were pretty... Tasteless and, I found them very juvenile. Yeah, they were very juvenile. You know, there was one joke which I kind of smirked at, which involved like God, the, like it, he he said like, oh God, the the hosp the 
the hotel shower is so weak, you'd think like a three-year-old was peeing on my head. <laughs> Which I really, I don't know if that's, maybe it's kind of a pedophile joke. I don't know. Feels like it's a joke that Trump would enjoy. <laughs> but, um, no, but it's, uh, it's, it's kind of, it, it sets a really bad precedent. So what happened was, though, these tweets got resurfaced through the meddling of this repulsive asshole human Mike Chernovich. Yeah. And, uh, my, Corey, why don't you tell our listeners who this Mike Chernovich guy is? I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but yeah, I don't care. Yeah, I don't know either because I've never actually heard someone else speak his name aloud. Well, nobody should speak his name because if you say it too many times, he'll come and haunt your dreams. <laughs> so, this Chernovich fellow has a large Twitter following and he was central to the Pizzagate conspiracy theory. And he loves himself some Donald Trump. He also loves actually raping women. Yeah, well, what I heard was he was arrested for rape, but it was just, he ended up being just charged with assault. So he was accused of rape and he pled down to a misdemeanor. So he is not a convicted rapist. He is an accused rapist who received um, well, let's a misdemeanor just, Well, let's say, though, he has a record. Yeah. And in addition to the fact that he was actually accused of rape, do you know who said far viler things about rape just on Twitter than James Gunn? Mike Chernovich. Exactly. So Yeah, and so this is the guy who, um, you know, one of these f- fucking conservative people who... Love saying, oh, what's the matter? You can't take a joke. Why don't you just take, you know, find this funny until it's about somebody they don't like. And James Gunn was is one of these people on Twitter who's not shy about criticizing Republicans and Trump and everything going on right yeah. now. So basically, seeing what happened was Gunn's anti-Trump commentary inflamed these snowflake right-wingers who, um, I love, what I love about right-wing nutbars on Twitter is everything they say is really a projection. Yeah. So, I love how individuals who wring their hands about PC police and snowflakes and are you triggered... And safe wow, spaces. Where'd that, come, where'd that come from? And I love people who spend their entire day online being like, did I trigger you, libtard? Do you need your safe space, baby? Um, as soon as someone criticizes their dear leader, as soon as someone... As soon as someone maybe points out, gee, this guy seems to be... Uh, having misleading or factually incorrect statements. In other words, lying. Yeah, so basically, Mike Chernovich was triggered by James Gunn's anti-Trump comments and decided to excavate these long-buried tweets. And then and then Disney fell for the bait and which bas- was such which was so ridiculous. I mean, Newsflash to Disney, if you think a single person who wanted to see Guardians of the Galaxy 3 was going to say, 
I'm not going to buy a ticket for this just because of some gross tweets from eight years ago. I'll go one further. I think a lot of people who go see these movies, they don't really care who makes them. Like, do a lot of people go into... Did a lot of people go into Avengers Infinity War being like, oh, I wonder what cinematic excellence uh, the Russo brothers will bring us this time? (laughs) And, of course... Didn't bring much, but uh, but no, but it's a lot of them don't even care who makes the movies, they just want they just know it's the name Marvel and that's it. Now, maybe it's because James Gunn has a little bit more of a distinctive style than some of these other filmmakers, but it's just ridiculous. And also, I don't know if you've seen people be trying to compare this with Roseanne. Also, and like people I are like, have. well, what about Roseanne? She got fired by Disney. You know, what about that, huh? And you know, a lot of that is because she's also conservative. And but the big difference is basic common sense human nature. One person had some tweets that were not specifically at someone. They were just tasteless jokes, and you know, you can argue about. Okay, are the jokes, you know, appropriate or not or whatever. But again, it's just you you sh- you can't you're going after somebody as if they are committing like hate crime speech when it's just like a comic bombing on a set. Meanwhile, another person had a tweet specifically at someone like after they had already been told you gotta stop doing this we already know you have this history just cool off because you have this very popular series be smart and then that person did not i strenuously don't care about roseanne uh no i i don't either i only bring her up because other people yeah i can see the connection and i think there was an element of that on the part of right-wing twitter the whole well, we lost one of ours, so you have to lose one of yeah. yours. Well, that was something Matt Zoller Seitz brought up, this idea that we're kind of in, like, this war of, like, people in the public and, you know, have they done this, have they done that? Um, I, Al Franken, I think, was a little bit more appropriately compared to James Gunn. I know that he allegedly had a couple of other maybe real things that he did, but he also was kind of basically got you know kicked out by you know some really tasteless jokes from years back well i wouldn't consider the al franken and the james gunn thing and i don't mean i don't mean to keep comparing every single person but so i think as much as i just said i don't care about roseanne and i don't want to talk about roseanne i'm not interested in roseanne i think the roseanne thing is more analogous to the situation than the al franken thing okay because al franken was actually accused of like grabbing people's butts and stuff yeah maybe you're right not just like al franken wasn't accused of just tweeting things or being generally vulgar he was accused of directing his vulgarity at specific people yeah when in their physical presence and, like, grabbing them. All right, you you make a good point. Um, Maybe, maybe, I I don't know if I was even making that comparison. I just thought I saw it somewhere else, and... I I probably sound like I hate Al Franken or something when talking about this, even though I really don't. No, 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 I don't. We're getting off topic. So, (laughs) um, now, though, I mean... 
do you think Disney, like, there's this whole thing now I'm seeing with, maybe this is more, I saw Lindsay Ellis post this, and I saw a couple other people, hashtag rehire James Gunn. Like, that probably won't happen. I don't know. See, my attitude is, here's what I don't get, or I should say, here's why I don't understand Disney's actions, and this is one way. And I'm not talking about the morality of the decision because I don't think it was right for James Gunn to be fired. Like, I don't think it was morally correct. But I realize Disney's not going to, doesn't care about being morally correct. They only care about the bottom line. Doesn't Disney get by now that there is no attention span for scandals in America anymore? And. Everyone would have freaked out about James Gunn's tweets for, I don't know, five minutes, and then they would have moved on. And nobody would have remembered this by the time his movie actually no. came out. In fact, I didn't even know this was a scandal, like, until I read that he was fired. They blew it up. Like, because they... The, the problem I really see more going forward is that this... And why I wanted to lead with this is that other creative people who, you know, what if, you know, the other people who have maybe a history of saying things or writing things, and that's all they've done, like, should they also get punished for it too? Well, I think you really nailed it, where you said the James Gunn tweets are kind of like a comedian test driving material and bombing. Yeah. So... I didn't read all of the allegedly bad tweets. I I read a few of them, and I didn't think they were funny at all. I didn't think they were creative. So I thought they were very juvenile. I thought they were very much like the product of a 12-year-old trying to... Yeah, to shock us. Yeah, so I wasn't a fan of them, but... If he was still doing these tweets today, maybe... Who knows? Maybe it could be like a different situation, but all that a person sh I think should be logically or reasonably ex expected to do is, okay, I made I I said a lot of I, I put out a lot of dirty shit, and I know like I read that he might have put out like a thousand tweets or something. Oh, the whole. 10,000 tweets is a total lie. Oh, is it? Yeah, it's a lie. Oh, good. It's uh, a total lie. All right, I'm glad you told me this, because I, I was under the impression that he had... So that was also inflated, too. Yeah, so this whole idea that he quote that he tweeted, quote, 10,000 times about pedophilia, that is a right-wing lie. It's not true at all. Yeah, and it's... I saw some of the quote-unquote, like pedophile tweets that were rounded up as part of this 10,000, they have nothing to do with children at all. Not even like... So they were just other tasteless jokes. Yeah. And actually, I think another thing to keep in mind is n there is no evidence of James Gunn's kind of puerile Twitter sensibilities in his movies. No, well... I mean, he is a pretty. He he's made some stuff and that has been pretty fucking gross here and there. I mean, you never saw Tromeo and Juliet. Well, I'm talking the Guardians of the Galaxy. No, movies. no, no, absolutely. I mean, those are 
I mean, there's some stuff that's a little juvenile in them, but nothing that's like, you know, I mean, you could say Star-Lord is a little bit of a juvenile character. Yeah, but when you watch the Guardians of the Galaxy movies, there is nothing untoward or vulgar about them at all. No, no, absolutely not. I mean, so, they're, they're, they're meant to be, you know, family adventure, you know, vehicles. You know, it's a movie with a talking raccoon and a talking tree, <laughs> you know, like. But what I don't like about this, though, is that, OK, so Disney fires him. What is he not supposed to work for anybody now? Or is he supposed to be punished in perpetuity? It, it gives this message that if you, you know, once said something shitty, but that's all you did, if you weren't, you know, doing acts, if you weren't taking it out on actual people, then you should have your career, you know, fl- you know, fl- f- f- what word am I looking for? When you're got you and you're tortured and you're got the flogged. Thank you. You're being, you know, James Gunn's being flogged for some shit for old shit, basically. If it was something that was a little more recent, I could see the thinking behind it. But it gives this impression to creative people that, um, well, obviously, yeah, don't don't say you know try to not have, like, a lot of pedophile jokes. But also, even if you apologize for it and try to say, I'll become a better person, and do become a better, Mm. more caring person, that won't matter. Yeah, we should also mention at some point that both of us come into this discussion um, with a very strong bias towards separating the artist from the art. And both of us come into this discussion mm. with this belief that it's possible to enjoy the work of actual terrible human beings. Yeah. I'm not saying James Gunn is a terrible human being, but I'm saying both you and I have made the conscious decision to watch and enjoy art that's actually produced by really bad people. Hmm. Oh, I, I kind of see what you're saying. So yeah. Oh, well, well, you're talking about like Polanski and uh, yeah, I and mean, other people. I've paid to see movies with you made by someone who actually did rape a child, not just joke about raping a child. Yeah, and also a guy who, uh, and a guy who, uh, you know, like, uh, may have. Uh, a thing for 17-year-old girls and is a multi-academy award winner. Yeah, so before the James Gunn thing, um, we're both people that have forgiven a lot out of artists we appreciate, and that's something, actually, I've thought about a lot when we watched that special Nanette, and I felt kind of bad about it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, this I don't know if this, this isn't exactly a movie, but there's a new... A Netflix uh, comedy special. Uh, this this uh, I think she's from New Zealand or Australia. Or Australia. Uh, her name's Hannah Gadsby, and she did this special called Nanette, and it almost feels like it should have been called the last comedy special because <laughs> it's like this woman who is basically doesn't want to do comedy anymore, and she means it. Like she she just can't find humor or anything, and. And actually, the special's funnier than you expect, but she really gets serious into how what we view in our artists and what we get in our art. And she brings up, uh, she goes even deeper. She talks about uh, Picasso, for example. And then, uh, what? but also the other idea, too, that 
she, I mean, she went to a lot of things. She also talked about Van Gogh and how, oh, isn't it so cool? Like, you need to have mental illness to make art. Well, and she also criticizes people, people like you and I, yeah. who put the um, products of an artistic mind above the negative things that they do. Mm -hmm. And I was just thinking that... What, is it, is it hypocritical of us to be talking about James Gunn this way or no, something? No, it's not hypocritical at all. If anything, I'm pointing out our lack of hypocrisy. Oh. I'm pointing out the idea that you and I have both embraced the artistic work of actual bad people. Not people who have... Not people who make lame jokes on Twitter. People who who did, who actually have committed a crime. But, and, you know, that's something that um, I felt very bad about doing after watching Nanette. I, it made me feel bad about the fact that I've always been a separate the art from the artist type of person. Yeah, well, even more than that, I've actually found myself sometimes... Um, I, I and I and I actually will go further that maybe in my hypocrisy I'll I'll do that with I'll kind of select and choose that kind of thing as well. Mm. So for example, um, and I know I know it, it, it this was six years ago talking about old shit, but Clint Eastwood at the RNC with his whole chair gag with Obama, it kind of soured me to him in a way that. I never had with him before. Uh. And it's weird because I knew, you know, he was, you know, a conservative or, quote, libertarian or whatever. But somehow that just... And then he also made some other comments about, you know, people offended by Trump are just pussies or whatever. And it, and I know that's also another case where, well, shouldn't I separate from the art and the artist? And it was harder for me to do that with him. And... I, it's it's and I know that might spell a little bit of hypocrisy on my part that I should just try to separate. Well, for me, that. it depends on whether the things you don't like about the person, it's Do whether you, or not they leak into the art. Like when you watch a James Gunn movie, when you watch Guardians of the Galaxy, there's nothing that tricks you to. Oh, this guy had a crude Twitter feed eight years ago. No, no. Because that's what this comes down to. He had a crude Twitter feed yeah. eight years ago. Yeah, but I'm but I'm also saying that this spells it sets a bad precedent going forward. Oh, it, it, very it much tells does. it tells these right wing nut jobs. Oh, hey, well, why don't we just go into the pasts of other people who may have said some things that... And maybe, though, maybe they could be worse than what James Gunn said. Maybe not. Um, but it... Yeah, these are bad faith attacks. And they... they the, the only solution to it is, you know, maybe... Well, maybe this is a common sense thing, but maybe just stay off Twitter. Well, I would say don't give in to the outrage mob because they'll never be satisfied. Yeah, yeah, don't give in to them... Um, but, uh, but that's also, but it wasn't up to James Gunn. He, he, ha he was working for a gigantic company that made this move. They're the ones that really set a bad precedent I for everybody else. I wonder why, though. Why they gave in so quickly? Yeah, why it, did... 
Why did Disney believe anyone's gonna care about this years yeah. from now the, by the, the time the third Guardians well, of the Galaxy movie comes out? Well, there's some speculation. I, I have no... I, I don't know where this came from. This might have just been a rumor that, you know, floats around out there that the studio might have wanted to fire him anyway, like, for creative differences, and this just gave them, like, an excuse. That actually makes more sense to me. Because... The idea that anyone's going to remember this particular scandal years from now is ridiculous. We're on like a 10 scandals a week diet. This is this is the same kind of thing when I think back to, you know, one of my favorite people in the world is uh, Gilbert Gottfried. Yeah. And you might remember this happened. This was I'm going to say maybe 10 years ago, 12 years ago. He was the voice of the Affleck duck. For yeah. a time, you know, you remember, yeah. and um, they there was like a tsunami in uh, Asia or something, or some yeah, type and of he hurricane. got canned for making. He made like a tasteless, her like Asian hurricane joke, and you know, I watched a documentary about Gilbert Gottfried uh, some months ago, and he, you know, he regrets that that he made that joke. He he said he's tried to grow from that as a person. Should he be fired from another job because he made that joke before? <laughs> I don't know if that comparison makes as much sense, but I'm trying to dig into the kind of thing that make that this makes me worried about. I think, and I think Matt Solar Sykes has said this. I'm not sure, so apologies to Matt Solar Sykes if I'm crediting him with something he didn't say. But I also don't want to rip off. Right, An idea fine. and pretend that it's my own when it's not. I think it was Macular Sykes, though, who said that there is this element of American conservatism that is really frustrated that entertainers are disproportionately liberal. Yeah. So these freakouts are really freakouts about the fact that we're mad that most directors and most actors and most producers or whatever are liberal. And so it's a way of lashing out about lack of perceived cultural power. Yes, it is that. But what's also but it's also the hypocrisy that but going back to Mike Trunovich, you know, he's not getting in trouble for the many things he's really said that were bad, that weren't jokes, that were op actual opinions. Yeah, and I think there is a big difference between saying terrible things and meaning them and telling bad jokes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think that's what it comes down to. That's why I'm when I'm reading tweets about, okay, he's gone, who's the next, who should be the director of Guardians of the Galaxy? I'm like, no, no, no. We still need to have this conversation before we move on to the frivolous shit of, oh, who's going to direct it now? Um, I I really hope he gets rehired. That would be a great message. Bill, I don't know if you've seen this, too, that the, the cast is backing him up. Yes, particularly um, Dave Batista. Yes. So. I'm glad because he seems like a good guy. Yeah, I would like for him to get rehired, and I think, yeah, it's a bad precedent in a lot of ways that he got fired. I mean, I realize that even James Gunn being fired, it's not like, 
it's not like it's the end of his career or the end of his no, life or anything. No, but, but it's just it's it's a it's it's a shitty thing to happen. You know, it, it's uh, it, it it's one thing if you hear if if he had just if the the studio should have just waited maybe like a month or two after this all died down and then said, oh, we're letting him go because of creative differences. Maybe people wouldn't be having the reaction they are now. Actually. Your speculation that Disney wanted to can him anyway, and this was a pretext, I hadn't heard that before, or read that before, until you just said it right now. That actually makes more sense to me than the fact that they canned him out of some belief that his, you know, ruined name would actually bring down yeah. the movie. Because, no, it wouldn't. No, but Let's also- face it. An MCU movie could be directed by an admitted serial killer, and it would still well, make a gajillion dollars. Well, on to that point, I mean, look what, you know, Johnny Depp, he's one of the flagship stars of one of the main franchises that Disney has. There hasn't been talk like, oh, we're never going to work with him again. Yeah, even though all his movies bomb and he's not even successful anymore. <laughs> no, although he latched on to, now he's in that, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Fuck Yeah, him. but isn't every movie that's actually a Johnny Depp vehicle, haven't they all failed for, like, the last decade or something? Hmm. I feel like Black Mass might have made money. That was a, a so, few years ago. But, yeah, but you're that, right, no, you're right, though. Like, in terms of his box office power, I almost wonder when he ever really was, like, a box office star outside of... The Pirates movies and maybe a few of the Tim Burton movies. Because it seems like he's often in a lot of these kind of weird independent films that, you know, don't really make any money. Or, oh God, did you, do you remember, the, um, this has nothing to do with anything, but do you remember he was in a movie called Mordecai? I mean, I didn't see it. <laughs> no, I, I didn't either. Standards. No, I do too. I, I didn't see it. But he's in shit like that. And, oh, he's in the, he's in this, uh, Biggie Tupac murder movie. Uh, I don't know if you saw the trailer for that. And of course, that's coming out the weekend after Labor Day, which is almost where as, all the good movies go. That's right? like, that's like coming out on the first weekend of the year in January. <laughs> I remember years ago when I saw the trailer for it. I actually wanted. To, I actually wanted to see that movie of his, Transcendence. Oh but then no! It got really terrible reviews, so I didn't see it. I don't know if I had ever wanted to see it. I didn't want to see morose Johnny Depp on a computer <laughs> screen looking at me like the lawnmower man. <laughs> All right. But uh, no, I think you raised a good point that basically at the end of the day, the only morality in Hollywood um, is if you generate money, everything you do is fine. If you don't generate money, you're dead. But, but no, but that... But that logic, though, doesn't work, though, with James Gunn. I mean, he made two movies that brought in, like, a billion and a half dollars. Yeah, which is why... Um, why it doesn't make sense. I I like your speculation about while he was fired. Because when I was looking at this James Gunn thing, I was looking at it at the idea that Disney was somehow scared the box office of the next movie would be harmed by this scandal and that's ridiculous so yeah. i didn't understand why disney believed that because no. it's so obviously i mean not true if, if it was an actor 
that might make a little more sense. Like if it was, you know, if we found out like Chris Pratt used to have these Pratt falls <laughs> in his past that he's uh, come back to light. No. Um, all right. I don't know what else I want to say about this because we've been uh, talking about this for like half an hour. Um, but the point, I just wanted to vent a little bit and just, it, it really sucks. And James yeah. Gunn, I feel free, man. Yeah. You know. We wish you were rehired. I wish you were rehired because uh, you're a really talented filmmaker. Um, that also goes for Slither and Super, which also is in his catalog of work. Um, all right, let's talk about some movies we've seen. What is this? Oh, oh, oh this. hey, hey, I, I would like to get out. Look at this. I'm better one in the glove, though. Yeah. I, guess I ain't trying to go back to jail. $200 for Collins. Not Collins' gun. Very nice. Oh, I just got an Uber pickup. <laughs> you got it. Is this an Uber? Hell yeah. Tell him, slow down. No, you can't catch me. I'm on too fast on the gas. Don't chase me. Put him up like this, you guys. I'm a tough guy. I'm a tough guy. Do me a favor. I got three days left on this probation. When you got that gun on you, just don't tell me about it. Plausible deniability. Oh, do you mean this gun? Get out. <laughs> Good night, Colin. No. Bro. Stop. Stop. Don't you. Don't Today we saw Eighth Grade and Blind Spotting. Not in that order, but um, these are two indie movies that are being really talked about. They have nothing in common, they just happen to be playing together. Well, should I say they have nothing in common? I don't know. Huh. I guess you could say they're about two people trying to navigate this crazy world we live in. <laughs> then that's a lot of moves. No, but let's uh, let's first talk about eighth grade. Why are we doing eighth grade first? All right, then let's talk about blind spotting first. Yes, I want to do blind spotting. <laughs> well, I want to talk about them in the order that we saw them. Good idea. And I think it's important because this made a very big impression on us today. Yes. And for me, what this movie is, if you've, you might have seen the trailer for this, it stars uh, David Diggs, who um, played Thomas Jefferson in the Hamilton musical. Uh, he's also popped up in a couple other movies here and there. I feel like I saw him on a TV show, but I don't remember now what it is. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, he seemed vaguely familiar to me, although I don't really know I anything think, about Hamilton. I think he was also in that movie Wonder, which I didn't see last year. The one where uh, Jake Tremblay is the fa face weird kid guy. Um, oh, that movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The one where if Mr. Rogers had shown up and sung to the kid, we would have all cried. <laughs> um, but you know, what this movie is... Um, David Diggs is uh, just let out of prison. Um, we don't really see what he does in the year of probation he has, although we can kind of assume that he just kind of gets back into his normal life in Oakland, um, which involves, like, kind of just banging around with uh, this friend of his named Miles. Yeah. Um, played by Raphael Morel, I think is his name. I might be wrong on that. I'll have to check. Um... 
But he has three days left in his probation. He just has to be okay for three days, not mess up, and, you know, he won't go back to jail. But life is kind of making it very hard. Life is complicated. And he witnesses a police officer shoot and shoot a black man who is running away from him. Yeah. And as far as as far as the police officer knows, this black man is unharmed and he's running away and he has his hands up and he says like don't and the black guy actually says like don't shoot. And then the police officer shoots him because yeah. this is the world in which we live. Yeah, and like the the David Diggs and the police officer Police officer, by the way, is apparently played by Ethan Embry, who you might remember from 90s movies. Um, they share a look, but then David Diggs has to, you know, he's told to drive away. Yeah. And he can't really report on this because, hey, convicted felon. And, exactly. So and, he's yeah. torn. Yeah. Now, this isn't necessarily the central conflict of the movie. He is certainly haunted by this. Like, he, he has, like, dreams where mm-hmm. this obviously comes up. He has a very a bit on the nose, but he has a morning jog through a cemetery. Yeah, so which also conjures up a lot of ghostly imagery for him. Um, but really, the 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 conflict of the movie is his friend Miles. Yeah, so I actually loved this movie. This for me is the best movie I've seen so far this year. I loved this movie. I think it was amazing. You should all go see it. I, I would concur, uh, except I'm not quite sure I loved it quite as much as First Reformed. I'll, but that means that second best movie of the year is still really great. And what I loved about the movie was it's... I'm trying to think of another movie that simultaneously feels so intimate and so, like, slice of life but also very epic and ambitious. Mm-hmm. And I would say the central conflict in this story is between Colin and Miles, and Colin and Miles have been longtime friends, and ever since they were kids. So they have a very strong friendship, they work together. So basically, they drive to work together in the morning, they work together all day next to each other as movers, and then when they get off of work, they socialize with each other all evening. Yeah, and you even find out that when Colin did what he did that got him into prison, Miles was actually there, you know, kind of do, helping along the mm. v- very violent act, which we, we, see, we see very creatively midway through the movie, and maybe we'll get to that in a moment. But, um... It, what's I, I compared it a little bit to Mean Streets. That was what jumped out at me yeah. as far as the kind of conflict where you have this one guy who's, you know, trying to be a little bit more just leading a normal life, but, you know, a, a guy who he knows in his head is kind of trouble, is mm. he still goes along with it and lets him kind of get into trouble. Like, in that yeah. sense, it's like Mean Streets... But it also has that kind of edginess of really good early Spike Lee. Yeah, see, I... And the anger of Spike Lee, as far as... I loved that you made the Mean Streets comparison. I wish I had thought of that. I just thought of Do the Right Thing while I was watching it, um, which is a much more... 
I think, obvious and not as good a comparison as Mean Streets. Like, I think your comparison was better in your head. Well, well, I don't know about Do the, Do the Right Thing in maybe a slightly aesthetic sense, because the way that the movie's shot, and it's by a first-time filmmaker, um, the guy who shot this really wants to show the city of Oakland in a very particular way. There are times where we're just having, like, a shot that's kind of gliding along and showing us Oakland streets. And so it's really, like, a movie where the setting is informing, I feel like, the place. Um, I know we were going to talk about 8th grade, but I, I think I have to kind of stop and mention that we also saw the movie uh, Sorry to Bother You uh, a uh-huh. few weeks ago. That's also a movie, um, you know, I guess you could say in the broadest terms about a young black guy trying to find his way in life in Oakland, and that's why I mentioned the comparison. Um, but very different uh, attempts at looking at society's problems. Yeah. You know, because Sorry to Bother You is just weird. Well, I weird would say with a capital w. the third act is very weird. There are parts of Sorry to Bother You that are also kind of weird, too. Um... But it's, but whereas I feel like Sorry to Bother You is really hammering in like a social commentary, which, you know, and Sorry to Bother You, I think we both liked, but I think Blind Spotting also has this really rich level of social political commentary, but it's just presenting it as real. Yeah, so I loved how complex this movie was, and. The relationship between Colin and Miles is very complex, just if you're evaluating them as two individuals interacting. Yeah. But just that relationship has a lot of... There's a lot of kind of socio and political commentary examining this relationship. Yeah. Well, it's also, you know, Miles is a guy who, when you first hear him, he's like, why why are you talking like a wigger? (laughs) Why why are you... You're a white guy talking black, but as it turns out, Miles grew up in the same type of, you know, neighborhood that Colin did. Yeah, so Miles is the more hot-headed of the two of them, and Miles is the one who is always kind of starting trouble that Colin is kind of dragged into. But yeah, Miles is going through basically this authenticity identity crisis throughout the whole movie because Miles is white, yet Miles has lived his entire life in Oakland surrounded predominantly by black friends, he has a black girlfriend or wife, he has a biracial child, so... And here's what I like too though about their friendship you can see why Colin likes Miles, because Miles can be very charming and funny, and, you know, like, there's a set piece where he bar- he kind of, quote, borrows these, like, blow dryers and hair care things, mm-hmm. and goes into, like, a salon and does this big presentation to everybody to sell them. And I, in that scene, I felt like, okay, I get why... Colin is with this guy, Miles. I feel like without that scene, you might lose a little bit more of, well, why is this guy, Colin, even friends with Miles? They don't really seem to be on the same wavelength. You know, Colin's trying to be a little bit more of, uh, you know, I I live in this city, but I'm trying to 
be, you know, a good person. Yeah, and I feel like for the first half of the movie, Miles' personality seems very natural, mm -hmm. but as the movie goes on, we learn that part of Miles is overcompensating for the fact that he is one of the only white people who is from a predominantly black area and he's not a gentrifier. So no, he's not. He's critics, not. Um, critique of gentrification is another big part of this movie. And there's this scene where... I feel like that's why you also thought of Do the Right Thing. Yeah, because of the gentrification. But there's this scene actually where a new black resident of Oakland, so like a new black gentrifier turns to Miles and because Miles is white, assumes that Miles is um, quote-unquote ghetto demeanor is a put-on and that he is a white person faking being quote-unquote ghetto. Yeah. So this black gentrifier is very offended by Miles's self-presentation. The fact that like Miles wears a grill on his teeth and he talks in a way that the black gentrifier finds very offensive. So you have this really intense and really complicated scene where you have a new black resident of Oakland attacking Miles and saying, what are you doing? Why are you acting like this? And Miles is incredibly offended that he has been mentally lumped in with all the other new, new white residents of Oakland. Yeah. But then that also plays into a key moment that happens later in the film when uh, Miles and Colin have a big, big... Uh, they, they, have, they, they have it out, so to speak. They really do. And I don't want to say exactly what's said in the scene, like word for word. You should just see that for yourself. Yeah. But the point that Colin makes, I was like, yeah... Yeah, you, you kind of nailed it there. Yeah, Colin really gets to the end of it. and Which, wait, let me put it this way. A certain racial epithet that black people get called, it can apply to white people, too. Well, we're... Not only do we want to save this scene for you for dramatic suspense, but we're also too white to quote this scene. No, I don't want to quote this scene. Yeah. It's, it's fine. We're too white um, Also, I want to say David Diggs is really good in the movie. Um, the actor who plays Miles is huh. quite good. Um, just across the board, but but also, why it's so it, it was so amazing for me was just because the filmmaking in this is really rich. Um, mm. Like when uh, there's a point where in, when as the audience were shown what it is that Colin did that got him put in jail, and I think the movie said he was only in jail for two months, but that's yeah. still you know not good. You know, again, he's convicted black felon now. Um, but the way that it's shown is really striking. And how that scene has layers upon layers itself. Because yeah. the person who kind of tells the story of how Colin did this thing that got him into prison, that itself is really uh, just shocking. Yeah. And But then there's also the point of view of... What's the girl's name in it? Val. Val. Uh, Val is this other girl who might be kind of a romantic interest for, for Colin. Uh, but with the caveat that she also was there when 
this bad deed went down, and she has her own take on it. Yeah, and I think every character and every relationship in this movie is so layered. And in the beginning of the movie, we are told Colin and Val are exes. They used to date, but they broke up. And I think in the beginning of the movie, we have so much natural sympathy for Colin, and we're so sympathetic to him, that frankly, in the beginning of the movie, I thought to myself, yeah, you know, maybe Val is kind of like a stuck-up bitch, which is what Miles says about her. However, over the course of the film, you really come to understand where Val is coming from. See, I don't know if I ever found her stuck up. I think at first... She, I thought that they were leaning a little bit more into the cliche, which actually sometimes I saw this in more of like gangsta movies in like the early '90s, like the, the the like Boys in the Hood, where you have like the one, you know, good black girl who's there is like, you gotta get out of this life, man, you know, like that type of character. But she deepened though as the movie went on and. And then also, like, how Colin sees her, too, and his own conflicted feelings. Like, they have a phone call in the movie that oh, it, it kind of just breaks your heart. Because you realize, as much as you want to see these people together, it just it might not happen. Another thing I want to really praise this movie for was how well it balanced its comedic and dramatic elements. Yeah, because there's a lot of genuine... That's why I also thought of Mean Streets in that way of, you know, Mean Streets is a movie that you watch it and you think that, oh, this is this really heavy movie about uh, life in the, you know, the mean streets of Little Italy with these, you know, characters. But it's often a very funny movie and it kind of catches you off guard how funny it is. And also just... You know, that barbershop scene I mentioned before, that has people in it who are characters that we haven't seen before who are very funny. Yeah, this movie is laugh-out-loud funny at multiple times, and it's also incredibly dark and serious. And it could have been very easy for the tone of this movie to go wonky. Oh, of course. Because it veers from very comedic to very dramatic with stopping everywhere in between but yeah all i'm gonna do is like gush all over this movie because i love it so much but yeah it's it's the it's the sleeper of the summer it's the movie that i feel like again i mentioned sorry to bother you and i know we didn't go into that deeper review of that movie i think i also i want to tell people see sorry to bother you even though Go see Blind Spotting first because Sorry to Bother You has already got a lot of hype. Yeah, basically, you don't need us to tell you to see Sorry to Bother You because everyone else in your life is probably telling you and to you, see Sorry to Bother You. And you can listen to the, I think, dozen podcasts with Boots Riley Who on them. He's an amazing interview. Oh, oh, don't get me wrong. I love Boots Riley. He's like one of my new favorite people. Like, if you. You go, like, if you click on a Boots Riley interview and you think, like, oh, okay, I'll hear what, you know, maybe I'll hear a little bit of what Sorry to Bother You is about. And then you get, like, these awesome screeds about the evils of capitalism. <laughs> yeah, and I definitely learn from them. But yeah. you don't need us to tell you to see Sorry to Bother You. But you do need us to go, to tell you to go see Blind Spotting. Exactly. Um, now, I want to move on, though, uh... Another movie that might not need our help exactly in the hype department 
Oh, is... can I say one more thing about um, okay. point funding yes. before we go to eighth grade? Okay. Another thing I want to say, speaking very generally, is that this movie does a fantastic job of both giving and denying resolution. Hmm. And here's what I mean by that. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, well, I didn't want to get into this so much because my one... I don't know if I'd say issue, but one thing I'm still wrestling with is what the movie does in the final five minutes, which... I ultimately will let it go and say I enjoyed what I saw, even though how it gets there is a little bit too happenstancey. Well, my feeling about it is my brain tells me it shouldn't work, that it's contrived, but my heart tells me it was amazing. Well, you know what it is? Thematically, the ending uh, works because it gives... It, it's a needed moment in after everything that's happened because Colin needs that to happen. So, what I love about this movie is, on the one hand, um, the trailer of the movie makes it seem like the entire movie's going to revolve around the police shooting, as we mentioned, even though the movie doesn't really. So, on the one hand, this movie does a great job of demonstrating all of the indignities that the characters just have to live with that are just inextricably part of the fabric of their lives and they have to build their lives around these indignities so on the one hand there's i think a very realistic element of these things aren't going to change um the you know parts of your life for these characters are not going to change anytime soon no no so but you do still get really fantastic catharsis moments. You do, and I think they're... The thing is that you really... I kind of felt like that needed to happen emotionally, even if plot-wise, it kind of has to jump through a couple of hoops to get there. Yeah. Like, you have to... You do have to... I felt like I had to suspend my disbelief quite a bit for the end of that movie to work. But once I did, then it was fine. I, I tried to think to myself, you know what? It's just a movie. I love this movie so much, though. I love it. I love it. I love it. And okay. go see it. Okay. Hey, guys. Uh, it's Kayla, back with another video. So, the topic of today's video is being yourself. Being yourself can be hard. And it's like, aren't I always being myself? And yeah, for sure. But being yourself is like not changing yourself to impress someone else. A lot of people like call me quiet or shy or whatever, but I'm not quiet. Most quiet, Kayla Day. I don't talk a lot at school, but if people talk to me and stuff, they'd find out that I'm like really funny and cool and talkative. By the way, I like your shirt a lot. It's like so cool. What? All right, all right, my gusher fruit snack. <laughs> Let's move on to eighth grade, which is also a movie. This is a movie I like very much. Um, Bo Burnham, who you might know from comedy, uh, he made a, a movie where it's not really about him, but it's kind of about everybody in one character yeah. who's a 13-year-old girl. Who, it's her final week of uh, eighth grade. Actually, that's that's actually one thing that's in common with Blind Spotting: yeah. compressed time frame. Although, I would say in eighth grade, it feels like a lot more time passes than just a week. I know what you mean. 
it, it seems like almost it's more like a month that happens in a week. So maybe I don't know. I guess they needed to have some kind of framing device for that to work, um, as opposed to, you know, for following this character over the course of like a whole school year, it, we might want to slit our throats by the end of it. <laughs> um, but uh, no, we're following this girl Kayla. She does YouTube videos where she tries to tell people about how to do things, and you can build up how to build up confidence. Today I'm gonna tell you, like, you know, like how how you can totally like do this and like. It also reminded me how much I say the word like. Yeah, so do I. I, I was reminded in the very first scene, the video she does. I heard when your father has told you before, like, 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 like. I'm sorry to bring that back to you. It's in an, it's inevitable that people use filler words in their speech. Yes, especially uh, the younger generation. Um, what impressed me so much about this movie was just the the cringe factor. Oh yeah, we were both squirming in our seats the, while we were watching this. It, it it's it has that same type of effect like the show Louie used to do, um, where you're just watching this character who you feel for so much in like awkward situation after awkward situation um and it, I almost don't want to know the person who can't relate to this character yeah you know because like everybody's middle school if, well I'm sure I, I, obviously there must have been some girls who were more like whoever the popular girl was in this movie. Kennedy. Yeah, Kennedy, who has, like, the pool party and all the gifts. And... I don't trust you if you weren't awkward and miserable in middle school. Yeah, like, and also, the, the um, Bo Burnham really does a great job casting this movie as far as the, uh, the girl that he got to play uh, Kayla, and her name is uh, Elsie Fisher, she actually has been in a number of movies. I guess she's a child actress. She was... What has she been in? Of all things, she was a voice in the Despicable Me movies. And a, a mm. few other little indie movies. Um, but this is, this is basically her breakout role. Um, now, I have certain little criticisms of the movie. Um, as I told you when we were leaving, I kind of felt like... They, the movie does that thing that I've seen in other teenage movies where you have kind of like an outsider, whether it's a, a guy or a girl, where I'm, I suddenly see the hottest person in my grade or my class and I have such a crush on them. Um, so they kind of do that, which I saw in Edge of Seventeen, uh, for example. But what impressed me, though, was how it was able to cover a lot of the kind of emotional minefield territory that comes with being that age. It's just like, how, you know, if you're not great at having friends, how do you make friends? Yeah, so the naturalism and the relatability are off yeah, the charts. It's off the charts. Bo Burnham, I think, directs the movie very well, too, where he, do, he, he lets a lot of shots kind of linger for a while so you're just there and there's also something that happens which I won't say that's about I'd say more maybe like two thirds of the way into the movie 
that was almost so uncomfortable that it it stops being kind of funny awkward and just becomes really almost terrifying. Yeah, and actually there are a few scenes where he kind of represents her social awkwardness in a way that almost makes it seem like a horror movie. So there's the scene where she's been invited to the cool girls pop um, pool party. And what happened was the actual cool girl doesn't like her, wants nothing to do with her. But the cool girl, that's Kennedy, Kennedy's mother invites Kayla to the pool party. And Kayla goes to the pool party and she feels incredibly awkward and she changes out of her clothes into her bathing suit. And there's this scene as she's standing there in her bathing suit surveying everyone else who's frolicking at the pool party and it was really shot like it follows or something i didn't really think about that scene so much as a horror movie i know what you mean though about the movies from her point of view so that's what makes it so much it makes it both uncomfortable but you also it's this movie could also be called empathy eighth grade because yeah. you're just your heart is just pouring out so much for her watching her in this situation yeah you have so much empathy and because we are adults kind of sort of um, we're really babies at heart we you know you just want to reach through the screen and tell her like it's okay being an adult is so much better and easier yeah well it's funny because i think back to when i was at that age and i couldn't wait to be an adult i I was really looking forward to being able to do adult things like driving a car and buying liquor and going to r-rated movies and you know well maybe not so much paying my taxes but uh, (laughs) i don't like that so much um but you know whereas it's funny that now there are certain adults out there who then kind of want the reverse. They want to go back to being kids. No, I No, why, I why would you want to go back to being a kid? Especially now. One thing that I like, though, I almost wish the movie did this a little bit more. I understand maybe why Bo Burnham wanted to keep it more focused on the character part. But there are moments here where he satirizes just being in school that I thought were, like, the best parts of the movie. Yeah. There's a, mo- there's a set piece where... Um, it's just another day at school, and it's time to have our, if a shooter is in the school now, training. Yeah, you told me you didn't have those drills no, in your high school. We no. did. Well, you, so this was post-Columbine. Yeah, so... No, our, our see, I, I we didn't have those problems. Our, we, had, we just once, the only thing that I remember at our school in Teaneck, we once had to leave end the day early everybody had to leave the school because the crypts had threatened the bloods (laughs) the crypts being from hackensack and the bloods being from teaneck um we went to different schools oh we really did i'm 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 surprised i didn't turn out like miles from (laughs) (laughs) from blood spying so We no, had very I'm, different I'm, I'm schools. very white. We had very different school experiences, you Wait, and I. so you had, like, one of those, like, drills? More than one. Where, like, you had to, like, hide under your desk? Now, when I say we had drills, they were not exactly like they were in the movie. Because in the movie... You didn't have, like, 
the guy in SWAT gear. In like, the movie, a teacher actually dresses in SWAT gear and carries oh, a gun. Oh, that was a teacher? That's what I thought it was. I thought it was a teacher dressed oh. up like... But well, someone that makes actually it funnier. walks through with SWAT gear and a gun pretending to shoot students. We did not have those kinds of drills. But we did have drills where there would be an announcement over the loudspeaker and it would say like, okay, we're going to we're gonna go through a drill. What would happen if there was a, a school shooter? And then we would do the thing where you turn the lights off and hide under your desk and you would wait. Yeah, I don't know why we never had that. I guess, I don't know. My school just was better than yours. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, well, I think, I'm not sure about this. This is totally speculation, but weren't the school shootings in the 90s and early 2000s, weren't they kind of concentrated in rural school districts? Well, what well, well, was the one, well, Columbine was Littleton. Was that that world though? I, I thought know. they were suburban. I just, I'm remembering way back when I was in high school and I think the general attitude of at least my classmates and I was that school shootings tended to happen in more rural schools like the school yeah, I attended. Maybe but right. I don't know if that's true honestly. I don't know if that's something we just believed because we were young and dumb or if it was actually yeah. true. Alright, well that's 8th grade. I actually want to talk brief. I want to talk a little bit about some other movies we saw that hopefully you will remember them because I think they're pretty memorable. We watched the two Breakin' movies. Yes, we watched Breakin' <laughs> and of course Breakin' Two Electric Boogaloo. The one and only Electric Boogaloo. Um, now, I, now, why did we watch these movies? Well. I'm the one that really drove the bus in terms of us watching these movies. Yeah, I mean, I was vaguely interested in these over the years. Um, a couple years ago, there was a documentary about this film company called uh, Canon, and it was called Electric Boogaloo, The Wild, and whatever. And they featured, and obviously they talked about the Breakin' movies. Um, and Breakin', for those who don't know, it's a movie about, you know, breakdancing and early 80s hip-hop. We were watching these movies because... Yeah, why don't we tell tell them the, the bigger reason? Okay, so a few, like, I don't know, over the course of the summer, I decided to watch the first two Step Up movies on my own. I had seen Step Up 3, 4, and 5 and enjoyed them, so I decided to go back to the source. Then I decided to watch the movie You Got Served. <laughs> Which you watched with me. Thanks. Oh my god. And now it's also something recent that we watched uh, together. Um, so basically, I've been in the mood to watch corny dance movies. Yeah, and so I decided that, you know what? I'm kind of curious about Breakin' and, and even Breakin' 2 because I am a fan of early 80s hip-hop. I really love that old-school 80s, st 80s style as Donald Glover once joked, if you go back and really listen to 80s hip-hop, they're, like, rapping about their hats. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not exactly more sophisticated than the rap we have today. But I have to say, these movies were fun. Yes, they are. They're very charming. They're very kind of earnest and puppy-like. Yeah, well, especially, like, the first movie, 
you can tell that nobody's really like a good actor. Oh yeah, we should mention the acting in both of these movies is horrible. It's I, like high school play now quality. I, now I will say uh, the actor Christopher McDonald pops up in Breakin', and I had to tell you who he was because you didn't even really know who. He's a character actor. He was Shooter McGavin and Happy Gilmore, and he was the TV host in Requiem for a Dream. Um, yeah, no, I know what you mean by puppy dog like. It's 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 weird how the two character the two main characters uh, was it Shabadoo uh, and oh god, what are their names? Shabadoo's the actor. Yeah, that's yeah. that's his name. Um, oh man, it's. Uh, Oh, Aldolfo Quiones is Ozone, and Michael Chambers as Turbo. Those are our two main leads. And then you have Lucinda Dickey, who is Kelly, a.k.a. Special K. And she, it's like, the two movies, I guess, if there's a running theme, it's a little bit of, like, culture clash. Because she's, you know... The nice white girl from, you know, the suburbs. And she happens to see, like, this breakdance and happen on the street. And she, you know, decides, you know, because she's already a dancer and so she's going to do it. Um, first movie is when, you know, again, she tries to join up with them and create, like, a jazz musical? <laughs> kind of, sort of. That's a weird thing, like, how... They're trying to audition, like, they're all, lead it's leading up to this big audition, and, oh, that, that climax of breaking is so funny, the way that they somehow break into, break in, <laughs> they, they go into this audition that they're told, oh, you can't audition, because we don't want your kind of dancing, this is supposed to be real jazz dancing, but they're like, no, screw that, we're gonna dance, and then they dance, and then it's like, uh-huh, we got them. And uh, you can have your musical. Breaking two though is the prototype for Save the Rec Center. It's literally Save the Rec Center, the movie. Um, and Their Rec Center looks really awesome though. Yeah, it's like you wonder why the town like they wanted to tear this down to make like a supermarket. Like it, it, it just made no sense and. Oh my god, how they resolve things in this plot is just amazing. Yeah. How, like, the like the evil old white guy who wants to tear down the rec center, he is so, like, to the point of having the bulldozers there to tear the rec center down because nobody at the rec center has done anything to raise the money. Um, but then they somehow stop them. And then the media shows up, and the white guys meet, like, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, we'll, we'll donate some money to Save the Rec Center. Yeah, so basically... You're watching these movies for the dancing. Yeah, and You're not dancing. watching them for plot. If you go into Breakin' or Breakin' 2, and you write to the Wages of Cinema at Gmail and tell me, oh, I don't think this had a good story, you can go fuck yourself. <laughs> The dancing scenes are plentiful and delightful. The acting and interpersonal drama is pretty terrible. But, again, there's kind of, like, a sweetness to it and an earnestness to it. And also, I, we must mention, Young Ice-T. Oh, yeah, Young Ice-T is in these movies. We have ba Baby Ice-T is in this. And in the second movie, comes in as Rob Halford from Judas Priest. What? <laughs> 
Oh, and you know who pops up in the first movie? I might point this out to you. In a crowd scene, Jean-Claude Van Damme. <laughs> yeah, there. he's in it for a second. Also, I thought it was kind of fascinating how the male dancers are super macho yet super effeminate at you, the same you can time. Yeah, yeah. It, we, we were kind of cracking on how... Um, things uh, it's interesting how certain ideas of how what is quote-unquote street kind yeah. of changes but that was that was just the time i mean dr dre I, I think i told you this was in a group called the world-class wrecking crew and basically looked like shabadoo in breaking so i thought it's kind of interesting how stereotypically girly these supposed macho men act and dress and oh god their their acting is so bad though oh it's so bad oh man like whenever well it's not so bad when they're just kind of having a natural conversation but when like they have their dramatic moments yeah my god and oh and i should mention too that lucinda dickey the same year that she did breakin and breakin 2 electric boogaloo also did another movie for canon called ninja 3 the domination <laughs> Which we need to watch post haste because yes, she plays a killer ninja. Um, yeah, so we watch those movies because we love cheesy movies with impressive dancing. Though there is the genuinely dancing is pretty good. There's even a moment I should mention where you literally see somebody dancing on the ceiling. Yeah, Lionel Richie style. And I know the color palette, particularly of the second movie, is gorgeous. Oh my god, it's like you're watching Cotton Candy. Yeah, so great color palette, Cotton too. Candy Randy. Cotton Candy Randy. <laughs> oh, that's an in-joke. Um, I want to mention, though, briefly, another movie we watched for kind of guilty pleasure reasons that turned out to not be very good, which is called Color of Night. Ooh, Color of Night, yes. Oh man, this movie... Uh, if you haven't heard of this, so Color of Night... Um, at the very same Cannes Film Festival in 1994, when Bruce Willis was there for um, Pulp Fiction, he also had his own vehicle movie, which was called Color of Night. And we watched this because um, I had heard of it for a long time as one of these really crazy erotic thrillers, which used to be a big deal after uh, Fatal Attraction, and then Basic Instinct kind of kicked it off. Yeah, I and, wish erotic thrillers were still a thing. I like them. Yeah, I mean... Even when they're bad, I like them. Well, I mean, you get things occasionally, like, when the bow breaks. Yeah. But that's not quite the same thing. Um, one thing you should know, Color of, ba Color of Night is bad. And I was not prepared for how insane the movie is. Yeah, Color of Night... It's bad, it's very bad, but it's fun bad. It's the kind of bad you'll really enjoy, and it's the kind of bad where you constantly say to yourself, how did anyone think this was a good idea? How did hundreds of people this um, work on this movie without realizing what a colossal fuck-up it is? Oh, yeah, yeah. This is, like, how did this baby come to be delivered and be alive at the end. But the problem is, I feel like I don't want to talk about it in too much detail because I think its very special charms need to be discovered on their own. Well, I, well, I will mention some of the notable cast uh, also includes uh, Scott Bakula, 
um, Brad Dourif and Lance Henriksen are in the movie, uh, Le Leslie Ann Warren, and the actors are certainly trying. Um, yeah. Uh, the one who wasn't trying, though, was the the girl, and I keep forgetting her name because she's so bad. The actress's name? Wasn't it Jane something? Yeah. Like Jane Marsh? Yeah, that might right? be it. Thank you. Yeah, Jane Marsh, who's Bruce Willis's love interest. All I'll say is that connoisseurs of bad movies kind of need to see it. Yeah. Um, and let me, to put another way, how this get made, did an episode on it with uh, Amy Schumer. And there's it. a special, yeah, it's a mystery I, plot. I started my review on Letterboxd quoting The Great Muppet Caper. Where there's a bit where Sam the Eagle just opens a door and tells all the Muppets, you are all weirdos! And he goes back and he clothes slams the door. That's how I feel about this movie. <laughs> well, yeah. And Bruce This Lee, movie's full of weirdos. He's got to solve those murders and preside over those therapy sessions. Oh my god. Uh, let me just uh, go through a few movies really fast uh, that I saw um, that I might want to recommend to people. Um, okay. There's a movie called Leave No Trace, which is in independent theaters. Uh, this is a movie directed by Deborah Granick, who did uh, Winter's Bone. And uh, this is one of those movies that uh, I I really wish that this that, that she was making more movies. She, she's only made like a handful. And she has such a great knack for having a profound way of observing people. And it doesn't seem like she's doing much. And this movie is just really unique in how it has, like, a father-daughter story. Um, and uh, with and Ben Foster, for once, doesn't play a villain. He's, a, like, such a good actor, but in this movie, he's not a villain <laughs> for once. Um, it's very unsentimental, and it makes it all the more touching. And, uh, yeah, so Leave No Trace, I wanted to recommend to people. Um... On HBO, there's a new documentary called Robin Williams, Come Inside My Mind, which <laughs> that title almost could be a little bit dirtier than you think. <laughs> Come Inside... No. Uh, you know, if you love Robin Williams, you should watch that. And see, it's very, going very quickly in some of these reviews. Um, oh, and Yellow Submarine, I watched again. Um, I, I feel like that would be the kind of movie I don't think I could sit you down to watch. <laughs> I don't think you'd have the patience for it. No. No. That's a shame. Because that is, like, such a charming movie while being a complete acid trip. It's <laughs> like if Adult Swim... If Adult Swim had been around in the 1960s, they probably would have produced uh, Yellow Submarine. You know, you just get... It, it's not really so much about the story. There isn't really a story in that. It's... The, the, the how the villains are defeated in Yellow Submarine is through the power of Beatles songs and love. <laughs> so it's almost like a Care Bears movie. But I still love it because no other animated film looks like it. In fact, I almost feel regretful now because when we when the Wages of Cinema, when we did our 10 most important animated movies, uh, which was our live show back in 2015, I wish I'd put Yellow Submarine on it. That's how important I think this movie really was. Because it showed that Disney isn't the only ball game in town. Like, there can be other people who can make animation and make it really effective. 
So, Yellow Submarine, saw that again, and it's pretty awesome. Oh, I have a movie we could briefly talk about. Have we podcasted yet about fear? I don't know if we've talked about fear. I feel like, did we talk about it after you watched it? No, no, because you, you watched it again on TV, and I just decided to be in the room while you watched it, and I made fun of it. Yeah, so fear is a movie very near and dear to my heart. Yeah. I want to carve its name into my chest. Oh, no. Oh, God. Wait, is that the thing that he does in it? Yeah, you don't remember? He carves her name into his chest. Oh, right, right, yeah. So, Fear is from the mid-90s, and it's the first big leading role for Mark Wahlberg. Um, or as I nicknamed for him throughout the movie, Rageberg. <laughs> and then... Uh, you called him Stormberg at one point, too, and it was awesome. Yeah, um, because he storms through a room, and he's Mark Wahlberg. Um, him and Reese Witherspoon, you know, he's the kind of bad boy in town. And Reese Witherspoon gets a crush on him, but, you know, it turns out he is really bad news. Yeah. And um, it's just, man, it, it's it's so cheesy at times. And the kind of twists the movie take are just so implausible. And... There are even, I think, vaguely edible things going on in the movie, too. Yeah, there are, because... Because Reese Witherspoon's dad is so protective of his daughter. Yeah, and there's this whole subplot of the father noticing his daughter is now hot, and then there are <laughs> scenes where Mark Wahlberg is practically, like, boasting to her father about how he has... Boasting to her father about how he has deflowered yes. her... And, like, there's this scene where he busts up um, Reese Witherspoon's father's car and says, like, now I popped your other cherry. Yeah, there's very much, like, kind of a taunting of, you know, like, the, how Reese Witherspoon, she's not even, I don't know, is she even that much of a character in the movie? No, not really. No, she's basically, like, this, you know, thing to be fought over you know, by these two men. In that way, it's a little bit of, like, a misogynistic movie yeah, when it you boil it is. down. It's also kind of misogynistic in the way that it treats the Alyssa Milano character. Yeah, yeah, she's in it, too, and she's, like, the girl that Mark Wahlberg also has a thing for, but there's not, like, the kind of, you know, I'm getting the good girl, so I really have to work for it. She's already mm -hmm. kind of down on her luck. Yeah, well, because Alyssa Milano plays Reese Witherspoon's best friend, because she's a quote-unquote, like, loose woman, she basically deserves everything that happens to her in the movie. Yeah. I don't know if we talked that much in depth like this when we were watching the movie. Well, I think we were just mocking what was on screen. You were joking, and I was laughing. I love the movie Fear. Uh, I think it's... Let me put it this way. We, as I told you... This movie's directed by James Foley, who directed two of the three Fifty Shades movies. Which is a shame, because Fear was definitely the peak of his career. And no, no. It's, come on, take that back. What else did he make that was the Glengarry Glen Ross. I don't know, man. Glengarry Glen Ross is good. Maybe you're not my co-host anymore. <laughs> oh, we should tell the people how you were such a good husband, and how you treat your woman right. So, somebody... <laughs> saw a Blu-ray of Fear for $3 in 7-Eleven and bought it for me. I might have done that, yes. 
Yes. So. And then, you living back in the house? <laughs> if you've seen the movie, you'll know what I'm referencing. Also, too, if you watch Fear, it's so 90s. I know. They, they repeat, like, this one song by Bush, the band, like, uh, twice. I loved how 90s it was. They but... even had, like, a 90s female sung cover of Wild Horses. And... While Reese Witherspoon's getting finger-banged on the roller coaster. Or, no, yeah. Yeah. On the roller coaster. See, she's going up the roller coaster as he starts fingering her, and right when she comes is right when she goes down the roller coaster. It's a metaphor, man. It's deep. Oh, God. <laughs> I oh. love this movie. I loved watching Jack make fun of it. <laughs> Well, we watched it together. <laughs> oh, if you had been there in the room, I was a one-man riff tracks on that thing. It was so good. I'm so glad we watched it together. It was the first time you had seen it in many years, probably, right? I had seen it before. Yeah, I know yeah. you've seen it before, but the first um, time. It, almost, it also reminds you, though, how not good an actor Mark Wahlberg was. Is. <laughs> yeah. Hey, hey, man. Hey, are you okay? Hey, how's it going? Hey, this is me being dramatic. You see me? This is how I'm talking. So, this is how I'm doing my thing, man. I know I already told you this. We're just restating it for the podcast. Like a week ago, I found out that Mark Wahlberg was the highest paid actor of 2017. He made $68 million, and I was shocked because I thought he was totally washed up and wasn't Why even Why did you think he was washed up? He's been, like, a big star Maybe because I just don't see any of the movies that he's in. So he's washed up to me. You wouldn't... You're <laughs> never going to sit down for pain and gain? <laughs> Basically, <laughs> or or Transformers four or five. Fear and Boogie Nights are all I need out of Mark Wahlberg. I'd add the fighter in there, but yeah. Oh yeah, that's a good movie too. Yeah, but that. yeah, God, the fear. Fear is basically like, I would say it's not as good as stalk, the Stalk by My Doctor movies, <laughs> but it is very emblematic of a kind of lifetime. Oh movie man, I would love well. for them to do a Bechtel cast episode about fear. Wouldn't that be amazing? I think that it would break them. I think that they would just, like, give up and, like, jump out a window. Um, yeah, so are there any other movies you want to talk about? Not really. I don't think I've watched any other movies. I think you might have, and you're just forgetting. Uh, oh, and I want to tell you also... Oh, I have one more. Uh, Three Identical Strangers. I oh, don't yeah. know how much in-depth we can talk about that. I feel like that's the kind of movie that you should go in knowing as little about it as possible. All you need to know is it's one of the best movies of the year. Go see it. Yes. If it's still playing near you, Three Identical Strangers, the documentary about these uh, three twins who... Not three twins. Oh, I'm an idiot. Three <laughs> twins. No, I got this movie about three twins. Oh, my God. Triplets who discover each other. Um, all right. If you've seen any of the movies that we've talked about, uh, you can visit us at Wages of Cinema on Facebook and Twitter. Leave us a comment. Uh, make sure to uh, subscribe on our iTunes or SoundCloud. Uh, we're also on the uh, Stitcher app if you happen to have that on your phone. And uh, make sure if you're on iTunes to give us a rating and to write us a review. It always helps our presence uh, on the interwebs. Um, when we come back, uh, we are going to give some commentary about the trailers that played the San Diego, San Diego Comic-Con, uh, which, which we haven't done in a couple of years. So uh, stay tuned for that.
It all could have been different, Mr. Walker. You should have allowed nature to take its course. In the end, it will anyway. So let me the fucking house!